Welcome back to our six-week series on Sermon on the Mount. And kind of a juicy topic today, internal rewards. Definitely a harder one to prepare for. And, and probably something um, maybe you've thought a little about. And it just seems maybe some quirky verses. Not sure where to fit those or kind of brushed over them without thinking through them. Because uh, most of the people I read on this um, see something, but they don't have enough to really go in. And they kind of throw up their hands and uh, and say it's just one of those difficult things. And so um, it it is admittedly a difficult topic. And so I just want to introduce it. There are kind of two main positions um, among Protestants, Reformed people especially. And um, I, I think most probably lean towards my view. And um, but I just want I want to get it to some two specific practical questions that I think are the ones to wrestle with. And I'm not trying to persuade so much as open up some of the, point you in the direction of some of the scriptures that you need to wrestle with. And I think it will be a wrestling, um, at least it is for mo most of us. Uh, remember those who are listening after this is recorded, all these slide notes, slides that are getting posted, if you view the slide notes page, I have pretty much all my teacher notes there, lots of references, Lots of uh, different references on this topic. You can go to different talks, sermons, uh, et cetera, and articles that, that will help. So if you're really interested in diving in, there's, there's lots there for you. As I've said, I read a large book by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's been a huge influence to me on this whole series. This specific topic, John Piper um, and some others, Randy Alcorn, have been really helpful. And, and then some of the articles that you'll see there. But let us go ahead and open in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we don't want to treat your word like a textbook. We don't want to put you under the microscope and under our analysis. We want to sit under your word. So help us as we, we work through even a difficult topic that we, we would find just places of practical obedience and submission. May we pause and wonder at your mind. Uh, knowing that we just can't comprehend you. And, and that's a good thing of itself to come to that conclusion. And yet there are some practical things. We pray that we would, whatever your word teaches as far as motivation to good works, we want to have that motivation. We don't want to think that we can earn our way to your favor. Uh, we don't want to be hypocrites. Um, but we do want to have, be people who truly believe who truly love and sincerely want to run and practice righteousness, practice holiness in this world. May we love those around us, our brothers and sisters uh, in the church, as well as those outside. Uh, may we show the love of Christ in a sincere and a genuine way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week introduced the fact that there are several categories of God's judgment. Here, here would be three of them. And we concentrated on that first one, that ultimate judgment. The end of the Sermon on the Mount there goes through five different parables, uh, the sheep and the wolves, the, the healthy and the diseased tree, these things that help, help us show that every human being is going to face the judgment of God in the end. And there are only two mutually exclusive binary destinies uh, for each one of us, those who are sincere believers and those who are not, and particularly in this context, those who are faking it, who are hypocrites, and their, the truth of their hearts through the, the fruit of their lives will be proven um, one way or the other. And these are, not, these are distinct categories, but they do overlap a lot. Um, we'll see some of that today. So today I'm going to return to last week just a couple points, but I want to press home the fact Today, I want to concentrate on the Christian. We talked a lot about the unbeliever, the hypocrite, last week. Um, but we do want to see that both believers and unbelievers face that final judgment. There are many passages that talk about all people. For 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. So you see that the judgment is for specific works. And it's actually for good and bad works. Oftentimes, we think of judgment in just a negative sense. And sometimes it does mean that. Like, but first the judge is going to hear the case and determine guilt or innocence. Look at good and evil. And then for those who are guilty, there's a second, quote, judgment 
that really is a sentencing phase. And then we have passages that specifically talk about Christians being judged. Romans 14 is a good example. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Romans 14 is all about how we treat each other, specifically Christian liberty. It's all, it's all about the strong and the weak brother. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God, so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. And that phrase, give an account, is a great description of the type of judgment that a Christian faces, along with unbelievers, but we give an account. A couple of the points I made last week I want to readdress uh, specifically in this light of Christians. First, we said that judgment can mean discernment or condemnation, and that's what I was just saying. First, the judge discerns a case, determines uh, good or bad fruit, uh, sheeps and wolves, that type of discernment makes a judgment. And then sometimes judgment really is already condemnation. For instance, in John 5, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So in that sense, judgment is that negative, that condemnation sense. Um, a Christian does not face that kind of judgment. In Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So whenever the Bible talks about a believer facing judgment, it certainly doesn't mean the condemnation. That's not possible for a Christian because of our standing in Christ. Another thing we said was that Jesus is not limited to discerning internal truth based on external fruit. Wolves will deceive us for a time, and yet ultimately we'll be able to uh, know them, recognize them by their fruit. But Jesus isn't going to be fooled in the end. Right? He's going to know those who cry to him, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these amazing things for you? He, will, he, he never knew them, and he will give them their just punishment. The last two I'll take together, that there is a relationship between our subjective experiences and objective truths. Um, they are distinct things, and yet they go together. And that helps us not trip over some verses. And then specifically, differences in the judge's verdicts lay in who does the words of Christ. For example, in Romans 2, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, Paul, if, if anyone taught the justification by faith alone, um, clearly it was Paul. And yet in this passage, some will turn to it and say, ah, we're justified by our works. He doesn't say we're justified on the basis of our works, but the people that are justified, and we know from elsewhere they're justified because of faith alone, they are described as people who do the law. And so if you are a Christian, you will produce good fruit. You will do good works. Again, you're not saved by those works, but you're not saved without them, as Spurgeon would say. And we'll go back to that in a second. All right, I do want to deal with this category just very briefly, one slide, because the Sermon on Mount doesn't really get into this category. But if you're just thinking of the fact that Christians do face judgment, there are some passages that might uh, confuse you because you think he's talking about the eternal judgment when he's not. For instance, I think 1 Peter 4 falls in this category. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It begins with us what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. The righteous is scarcely saved what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. 1 Corinthians 11. And this was a great one for the different types of judgment. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. See there, we Christians do face a judgment but in our case, it's not condemnation, it's discipline. And so there is a, there is a judgment that God does in this life, not, not the white throne judgment at the end of time, but God uses uh, struggles and suffering in our life for his purposes. We see there the first chapter there of the first Peter, temporal judgment of Christians is for purification, not condemnation. Now, this is a distinct category, but it does tie to the, to the first category. So as we are considering that final judgment, when our fruit will be looked at, our good works will be looked at, uh, the fruit of our lives, do they give evidence to internal faith? Um, as we persevere in this life, we're also looking for that fruit, right? Hebrews talks about the fact that there isn't a sense that our assurance um, can, can be strengthened 
because we see fruit. We see God work in our life, and that gives us assurance. Um, and so there's a connection to what God is trying to do in, quote, judging us in this life, um, purifying us, disciplining us. So, so again, that the, the, the love of this world disappears, um, and we hold on to that ultimate hope uh, in heaven. Huge topic. I would love to jump into it, but Sermon on the Mount doesn't deal with it. I just wanted to, to let you know the passages there. you got to look carefully at, at what is meant. Okay, and really we want to get to our last category of eternal rewards. And I want to specifically tie it back to that, that last point of the first category that I mentioned, that, that Christians will give an account for their good and bad works while done in the body. So let's go back to our, our main text in Matthew 6. Prepare, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. And of course, he says similar thing about praying uh, or fasting so that you may be seen and praised by others. So here's really the question when we get to eternal rewards. Is Matthew 6 teaching that the hypocrite cannot be a genuine believer? So hypocrite is kind of a category of people, like later he uses the word Gentile, where he's separating this is an unbeliever, and he's using the term hypocrite. And in that case, a Christian's reward is heaven, right? Or at least you could argue that it's heaven. So all Christians will receive the same reward. So we have these two categories, believers and unbelievers. Believers receive the heavenly reward. Unbelievers or the hypocrite receive an earthly reward of praise. Or is Matthew 6 teaching or warning Christians against practicing hypocrisy? Like he says later, he says, don't pray like the Gentiles. And so you can pray in an unrighteous way. As a, as a true believer, you can practice unrighteousness. Um, and in that case, it opens up the possibility that we're rewarded in heaven in some amount that corresponds to our practice of righteousness. Um, either way, before we leave this text, notice that I, I think all of us have some kind of challenge here, logical challenge with our theology. How is working for reward not the very definition of hypocrisy, or at least meriting favor? Um, are, either way, if, if we are working for a reward, whatever that reward is, if it's heaven itself or if it's some different levels of of rewards or crowns in heaven, isn't that kind of go against what we try to preach so clearly and consistently? We're not doing good works to get into heaven, right? Or to get a reward, to get a blessing. And so I'll just start to tip my hand here. It, I find it hard to reconcile these kind of texts with the notion that the only motivation we have for good works in this life is gratitude, which I hear a lot. Like, you know, because the unbeliever uh, will works righteousness, they're going to, they're trying to earn their way to God's favor and contrast that to us, those who understand that they've been saved by grace through faith, the righteousness of Christ alone will stand in judgment. Um, we simply go out and do good works in gratitude. And so I think pastors like this challenge that notion. Now, the gratitude is a huge motivation, perhaps the primary. Um, but let's keep looking at this. Okay, if you don't know what that is, that means you haven't been listening to this class. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, basically, when I talked about the law of God, you remember in week two, um, the cloud in the middle represents kind of a topic or a systematic theology. So we're talking about eternal rewards today. And you have all these passages that, that kind of feed into our doctrine, right? There are some primary passages, and then there are some secondary passages that, um, and the, the point here is you don't want to be, unidirectional on those arrows. You don't want your system that you come to believe force every text into your system, like outward facing arrows in this point. You, you don't want to just not accept the, the tension, the logical tension that a passage might give you. Say you've come to this text today and in your mind, um, there is no such thing as different rewards in heaven, right? So I come to this text, I'm gonna force this text to fit my, my system. Um, on the other hand, you don't want to just run to a text and say, oh, well, on the surface, you know, it seems to say this. Like I said, 1 Timothy 2, women will be saved through childbearing. Oh, well, I guess women are saved by having kids. 
Right. There's always this interaction because what you're really doing by interacting with this cloud in this middle with this system is you're interacting with the rest of scripture. So you, you're really wanting to interpret scripture through scripture. And so if you, if you have something in your mind about what the Bible teaches and, and what its logical implications should then be, and then you run to a text that seems to go, you know, not correspond with that, that's when you kind of pause. And you, this is when the wrestling starts, right? You go back and forth and you, you try to work it out and challenge your own system. Are there other ways to read these verses? And I, that's what I've had to do in this. So maybe you've got it all figured out, but that, this is what I'm, I'm um, proposing. Um, this is a great topic where this is gonna happen. So let me just help you with some of those texts where you might wanna wrestle. And then if you come to a different conclusion than me, that's great. All right, so the, the main categories there kind of correspond to what we saw in Matthew 6 is what I'll call, I've not seen these terms before, but the equal rewards. Basically, all Christians receive the same reward. So reward always refers to, you know, the ultimate reward, heaven, salvation, inheritance, Christ himself. Christ is our reward. God is our reward. What, what more do I need than Christ? Um, and this really does seem to be the necessary implication of justification by grace alone and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So we know that Christians practice righteousness in different measures. We know that some, quote, do better than others in a sense. Um, and yet in the end, we're going to be clothed in his righteousness, right? So we often talk about when God looks at me, he doesn't see me, he sees Jesus, because I'm in him. I'm in union with him. So as God judges Christ as perfect, he will then judge me as perfect. And so how could, even if you have variations of Christian holiness on earth, if we are all ultimately in Christ, how could God judge us and look at us in any different way? And, and, and that is the logical tension that I myself run into. So the second category I'll call the unequal rewards. Christians receive different rewards in heaven. And in this case, reward can some, at least sometimes refer to specific joys or treasures or glory, things that can be added to or lost in this lifetime. And, and which is why, if that's true, it's being used as a motivation to act and behave and have an attitude in a certain way. And in, and in this position, there would be a difference between salvation and rewards, just as there would be a difference between the overall condemnation of unbelievers and yet different degrees of punishment. So let's go to some of these verses. And believe me, we'll have lots of time to, to talk today. So here's the two practical things that I think this really gets down to, the nitty gritty. This isn't some you know, ethereal, high theological thing. We can just, I don't know what that is. We'll find out in heaven. Because the first one is, is whatever Jesus is saying there in Matthew 6 and other places, it seems to be a motivation. It's, it's intended to be a motivation. Don't do this because you'll lose your reward. And so we can't just wait to heaven if it's supposed to be used. What, so whatever Jesus is talking about is meant to motivate us in how we work today. And then the, the other one is just, maybe this is a little more theoretical, but how do we envision heaven? Like heaven is perfect. And can we say heaven is perfect when we, when we think about differences? particularly on rewards, like people will have more glory or more prizes, or what does that mean to our whole concept of heaven? All right, so here's some of the verses. First of all, for those in the equal category, uh, I think verses like this support their case. Whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your Lord. See, a singular inheritance, the inheritance. There is, there is an inheritance waiting for Christians. Um, and the motive, knowing that that inheritance is there for you, you don't have to worry so much about how you're treated on this earth. Hebrews 11, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Again, a singular, the reward. Uh, there's, there's, no, there's no hint in these verses, and I could go to lots of other verses, um, that there's differences, right? There's, there's an inheritance, there's a reward that we all seek for, and that motivates us um, in this world. Some uh, people hold to this category alone would maybe look at Matthew 20 when, you know, the landowner goes out to find laborers. He hires some at nine in the morning, some at noon, some at 3 p.m. And at the end of the day, he pays everyone the same wage. 
He says, it's, it's my right. I told you this is what I pay you. This is what I pay you. So it doesn't matter the differences in how we work or how we serve the Lord. Then in the end, there's, there's the same wage, right? There's the same reward, you could say. There's a topic here I think we, we all want to deal with because no matter where you are on this topic, um, I think this is, a, this is a logical challenge. And a lot of this I got from Piper. So back to that Romans 2 passage, God will render to every man according to his works. And yet Ephesians 2, 8, and many other verses we could say, by grace you are saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not a verse. So how do we reconcile passages that seem to say that our salvation is based on works and other passages say it's definitely not based on works? And I think it's, it's, it's simple but subtle again, sometimes you just have to step back from the verse and look at the overall weight of the passage. What is the author really arguing for? But I think this, these phrases are important. Notice that in the first passage, Romans 2, he's talking about according to. That's not the same as being of works. He didn't say he's going to render, you're not going to save because of your works, meaning on the basis of your works. And that's exactly what Ephesians 2 says. He says it's according to. So there will be an accord. There will be an agreement between our salvation and our works. Works do matter in our salvation, but not as the basis. And that kind of goes back to that Matthew 7 passage, like uh, James 2. There's other passages. There, there is an evidencing. There, there, we expect when there's an internal reality that that will come out. There will, there will be an external look. And so there should be an accord. It, it's... It doesn't, it should not make sense to us that someone believes, claims to believe in Christ, to have this eternal faith, to have this salvation, to know of their washing of clean, cleansing, and then act in a different way. As First Peter says, act as the Gentiles do. We, there is a proper expectation for works because of your faith, because of your salvation. But one follows the other. And so basically in the, quote, debate, and we, we basically should all agree with this point. Um, the difference is some limit the reward to this reality. And some would say, yes, sometimes reward is, is at this level, and sometimes it goes further, which is what we're about to turn to. Wherever we go, whatever is about to be said, we want to be very clear on this last point. Justification by grace alone, we need to hold to. We need to hammer it all the time. We need to be clear. You cannot be more or less justified in heaven. So whatever I'm about to say about rewards does not talk about justification. It does not talk about salvation. Um, and so assurance. Um, I, I know whenever we talk about assurance, it's, that's a real struggle for people. And maybe for a lot of us at different times of our life. Um, what we're not talking about is not assurance of heaven based on your work. Um, if you're justified, you're justified. Equal worth in the sight of God. Okay. So let me now just hit some of the verses that lead me to the second category. However, hum, uh, you know, illogically or humbly, I have to hold the truth because I don't have all the logical tensions worked out. Um, there's a lot of verses here, actually. So for those who would see that rewards somehow correspond to how much uh, faith and righteousness and practical holiness you demonstrate in your life, let's just start with the Sermon on the Mount itself. In Matthew 5, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who before you. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments teaches others to do the same. Will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice that both these people are in heaven, and yet there is a there is some kind of difference in their greatness in heaven. Um, Matthew 6, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Here we have a plural treasures, not the inheritance or the reward, but there are treasures that you can lay up for yourselves on this earth. Let's go outside the Sermon on the Mount. First uh, Corinthians 3, if the work that anyone has built on the, on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, I agree, some of you are saying, but this passage isn't about believers, this is about Gospel laborers, uh, ministers. Uh, I agree. That's that is the main emphasis. However, you still have to see it. Thinking this passage that what these people have done in their life follows them into eternity. 
It's not just that their work is burned up on earth, like their ministry is destroyed, um, but the, their work, the, what they could show in heaven is destroyed. I think if you read it in context. Uh, Second is five, we already said it, but let's say it again. For we must all appear for the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There is a look at what we've done. Second John 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we've worked for, but may win a full reward. And then the, again, the slide notes will have many others you can look at. And then this whole idea that the, the corresponding reality would be true of hell. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Matthew 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. So if we see levels, uh, degrees of punishment in hell, it would make sense that it would correspond also in heaven. Um, let me turn to, just to kind of ground us before our, our practical discussion on this. Um, I think there are some words in the Westminster Confession of Faith that are really helpful here. So in chapter 16 on good works, let's look at three of these. Good works are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. By them, believers show their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance of salvation, edify their brothers in the Lord, and become ornaments of all those who profess the gospel. Good works and believers silence the criticism of the enemies of the gospel. They also glorify God by showing that believers are the workmanship and creation of Jesus Christ because their aim is that holiness of living, which leads to eternal life. And so on the one hand, we have that internal, true and living faith, producing external fruit and evidence. We do see that there is a sense that assurance uh, can be tied um, to that fruit and evidence. And then it's an interesting phrase at the end, how does holiness of living lead to eternal life? In paragraph five there. We can, of course, by our best works, deserve to be forgiven for our, sins and, for our sins and to receive eternal life from God. When we have done all we can, we have only done our duty and our unprofitable servants. Our best works are defiled and mixed with our weakness and imperfection. They cannot, therefore, even stand the scrutiny of God's judgment. So we are never saying, even though we would, we, I would say at least that some Christians will do more good works than others, None of those works at any point are ever ever deserve heaven. They never reach, even come close to earning a wage in the language of Romans 4. We cannot work for salvation. We cannot work for God's favor. Um, we can't earn anything. Uh, none, our best works will fall short, uh, vastly short. It will never stand the scrutiny of God's judgment. And here really hints towards rewards. Nevertheless, since the persons of believers are accepted through Christ, their good works in this life are also accepted in him. It's not as though they were perfect in God's sight, but that God looking on, on them in his son is pleased to accept and reward what is sincerely done, even though accompanied by much weakness and imperfection. And I think this is a great example of what I basically see when I turn to writers is it, it kind of gives a hint, yep, there is something about rewards that um, so, somehow your works are somehow accepted and rewarded, um, and yet not much is said. Like this, the Westminster Confession leaves me with lots of questions. It, it just kind of hints at it. And, you know, fair enough. Sometimes when we look at the Bible, we, that's all we can do, right? That's, that's our honest assessment. Maybe something like divine sovereignty and human responsibility, where I, don't, I, I can't logically tell you how that works out. God is in control of everything. Nothing happens without him, and yet he has no responsibility for wicked acts. Um, I'm fully responsible. I don't believe in a really free will, and yet I bear full responsibility. I, don't, I can't explain that to you. It, it's one of those logical tensions I just accept. And I think rewards maybe is in that category. But, but it does make me yearn for more. Again, if the reality of eternal rewards and differentiation of rewards in heaven is true, then it's meant to be a motivation for how I live. And so therefore I can't just not teach it or not talk about it. It's something I, I, I really need to meditate on, uh, whatever that means. So now let me just turn to, um, or here's the points I, I left you to ponder last week. 
Um, so things I've been saying all throughout, I mean, really, how do we, how do we look at grace versus works in this context? Um, what, how, how would our actions follow us in eternity when we're hidden in Christ in this righteousness? And, and the last point is, seems horrible. If, if heaven is perfect, I mean, wouldn't a differentiate rewards make some people disappointed and lacking for more and wanting more? And, um, so let me just give a couple slides here of, of how, I don't, I don't know if these will be fully satisfying, but these are some of the points that I think help us a little bit with some of these logical tensions. Piper Alcorn and others will, will emphasize, remember rewards are not wages. They're not merited. There's no earning of rewards. That's never the language of the scripture. But the rewards themselves are gifts. They're actually what Piper calls future grace. Um, now, that doesn't remove all the logical tension in my mind, but it, it helps me protect justification by faith. It helps me protect any, any hint of works righteousness. We are of equal worth, but somehow of differing capacities to know and glorify God in heaven. One of them said, all vessels will be filled to the brim with joy and gladness, but those vessels are actually of different sizes. Uh, Alcorn uses this analogy that suppose you wake up on a Saturday morning and gather your family and say, all right, we're, today's going to be a work day, guys. We're, we're going to go out in the yard and we're going to work hard all day. And the kids' eyes start glazing over and rolling and not being too happy. But don't worry, at the end of the day, we're all going to go out. We're going to enjoy a great meal together. Wherever you guys want to go, we're going to go frozen yogurt afterwards um, and really celebrate as a family. Now, there is a, there's a hint of motivation there, right? Through the day, the children will be thinking about this great, we're going to get to go out, we're going to get to have a treat tonight, and that, that will help them carry them through the day of labor that they don't really want. Now, it would be a much different scenario if the father said, all right, we're going to go work, and the children say, wait a minute, we're not working unless you give us this. I want, I want to go to this restaurant tonight, I want this tomorrow, and starts laying out demands, or, or they're unwilling to comply with the father's instructions. That's a very different scenario. So in the first scenario, there, it's not that the dinner and the yogurt and the fun family night is, is an earned thing. It's, it's, a, it's a gift. It wasn't deserved. It's never earned. It's just, it's a gift given in the, in the end that will motivate them through the day. That, that's, that does, again, for me, that doesn't remove all the logical tensions, but I think that helps. It's a, it's a nice analogy. Billy Graham made a statement I think is really helpful. We are rewarded for faithfulness, not fruitfulness. You look at the parable of talents where some, some have, you know, 10 talents, some have five, and, and, and they're, some are able to turn that investment. 10 turns into 10 more, five into five more. So God doesn't look at our spiritual gifts. He calls us differently. Some people have a very public platform. They're going to have a lot of, quote, fruit of their ministry because they're going to, people are going to come to salvation through their ministry, through the radio waves or, um, and other people have a very relatively humble and quiet and secret calling. Um, and it's the, when we talk about fruit in that sense, we're not talking about how many people have come to Christ through your, you know, through your ministry. It's were you faithful in what you were given? And so he would, he would tell young seminary students all the time, some of you will have more rewards in heaven than me. Because you were more faithful at whatever God gave you than what he's given me. And of course, anytime we look at good or bad works, um, it's not just related to doing those works, but what knowledge did you have when you're doing those works? There will be people who did a lot of really heinous, horrible deeds without knowledge. They weren't believers yet. And believers or anyone with higher knowledge is held to a higher account. And that would co correspond to rewards. There's a hint there in in Matthew 5, 19 that I read, that how you influence others. If you teach others to break the law, uh, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So there's somehow there's an, there's an influence on others. Philippians 4 is, is in the good sense. He, he commends them for giving to his need, not because he, he's aware of his need, but it, it's, it abounds to their credit. There's some kind of a credit on their account that their good works towards Paul. There's going to be accounting for that. There's in a good way. 
that they helped him, and God notices that and takes account of that. Jonathan Edwards, there, if you look in the notes, there's a, there's a lengthy article. There's a summary by Piper. Uh, it's too complicated to go into here, but in the sense that if one of our concerns is that we're going to look at each other in heaven with different levels of glory or rewards or whatever exactly that means, like we would be envious. Um, remember, we're perfect in heaven. So our attitudes and our responses and all relationships are actually perfect. So all these commands we have of how we're ought to relate to each other, rejoice with those who rejoice. That's going to be true in heaven. We're not going to be concentrated on ourselves and disappointed that Joe over there has more rewards than I do. I'm going to rejoice that Joe is so rewarded that he is enjoying that glory for all of eternity. As well, Joe's not going to look down at me. He's not going to despise me. Uh, think of me as lower. And, and that whole interaction in that relationship is going to increase love more and more. There, there, there's a sense that the damnation of the lost increases over time in eternity. And there's a sense that in heaven, uh, that interacting love grows and grows and, and gets stronger, uh, more love, more harmony, um, all into eternity. And so I, I don't really grasp it all. Um, but, but all these ways that we're supposed to interact and relate on, work, on earth will actually be perfect in heaven. And so we don't have to worry so much like, well, this is how I would respond right now if someone else got more than I did. Well, you won't be that person, right? You're going to be a sinless you, a perfect you. And then there are those, um, a few, that would say, okay, we get all these different rewards, but in the end, Revelation 4, this idea of the, the 24 elders throwing their crowns back at Jesus' feet on the throne. That we're all going to get different levels of reward. We're all going to throw them back anyway. So in the end, we're going to end up uniform and equal anyway. So I don't know if Revelations 4 talking about all of us or just the elders. You have to look at that. Some related issues, and then I'll open for discussion, is um, do, we, do we now recognize it? So if you struggle with the idea that Christians will be rewarded differently in heaven, but you say that, well, but I do recognize that Christians on earth are at different levels of holiness in the sense that there are Christians who do more good works than others. If that's true, that's still a logical challenge to justification by faith because we believe that we are justified now. So if God looks at me now justified, he looks at me as if I was Christ, what, what do these passages mean that, that some Christians still produce, you know, different yields, 100-fold, 60 or 30, or Colossians 320, uh, 3.20, for this pleases the Lord. So how is God pleased with specific works of holiness and righteousness if all he's doing is looking at the righteousness of Christ? So I, I find it's the same logical tension. So I have the logical tension now no matter what. And so I, I guess for me, I'm happy to carry that logical tension into how I view eternity. And yet I admit it's a logical tension. And the last thing is, um, it, it, again, there are passages that talk about motivating us to certain works. Luke 14, when you're invited, go and sit at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at that table with you. You will be honored. So you, Jesus is motivating you not just with a doctrinal teaching on we're all equal, the foot of the cross, but he's saying you're going to be honored when you act this way. First uh, Peter 5, the elders are, are motivated that you're going to get a crown that God gives those who, who love him. And so it, it doesn't seem to be um, a problem in God's mind that everything is received by grace. None of it is earned. And yet we're motivated by a blessing and an honor and rewards uh, based on how we act in this life. So I will leave it at that. I know that was a lot, um, and it's a heavy subject, but I really invite questions or comments. I invite disagreement. Um, what are your thoughts? Hi, Keith, it's Mark. Mark. Um, 
this lesson is a little triggering for me due to a heresy which had entered the Reformed churches known as the Federal Vision. I, I presume you're familiar with it, but yes, it uh, one of their heretical tenets is not sola fide, but sola fideism. In other words, not faith alone, but on your faithfulness. And that just totally guts the gospel. And there's been a ton written about it. And um, we have ejected men out of our denomination for holding to that. So, um, and I know that's not what you're saying, but um, I, don't, I don't think there can be any doubt that, you know, any good that comes out of me is from God. It's not based on any effort on my part. You know, and if you don't think that, then uh, I don't know. I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with the concept that um, we will bear good fruit, but our motivation cannot be any reward at all. Jesus, I'm as you've already pointed out. I, I, um, I don't know. This is just a little triggering for me. So, I think this is a dangerous area which really can lead to a heretical understanding of the gospel and of grace. So, so, so Mark, in Matthew 6, you don't see that Jesus is motivating them. Uh, with Of course we're motivated. I mean, but the motivation is due to heart change. Not due to me sitting here, Sola Bootstrap is saying, man, what can I do to earn some reward today? Again, I, I didn't say the word earn reward. But what, what is Jesus meaning when he says, don't, don't do this like the hypocrites, because then you'll have, your reward will be lost. You will have had your reward. What, what is he, is he not motivating us with reward? Whatever you think reward is in that sense. Is he not motivating us with a reward? Well, you know, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, no, I, you know, and it's obviously there are a lot of issues where there's unclearness. And the only way you can um, look at them is by looking at the, the clearer passages that, you know, help you understand confusion in some of these um, unclear passages. Yeah, and, and that's what this, back on slide 12 here, I mean by that, that, you know, there, there are verses, those shaded in verses there in the circles. There are more primary texts and clearer texts that have to drive our interpretation of others. That's definitely true. Yeah, I mean... And I just, I just, I worry that people will be attracted to it. And, and so the next thing, you know, you have people keeping score and people who are arrogant and thinking they're better. Than, I mean, it, right. it's, it's poison. Right. All, all of that would be absolute poison. So that's, that's all I have to say. I don't want to pick up your No, comment. I appreciate it. I think you're speaking for a lot of people. <laughs> this has been a controversy that has been... And by the way, not just Reformed churches, but everybody, almost all Christian denominations have condemned federal vision and the, uh, you know, the Confederation of Reformed and Evangelical Churches. I mean, they, and by the way, this is not their only issue, but this is, this is their big issue is they gut the gospel. So that's all. I'll let someone else talk. Thanks, Mark. Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, Keith, this is Ed. You know the great the great joy of heaven will be in Christ to be in Christ's presence. And I take encouragement at the cross where Jesus says to the thief, you know, "Today you will be with me in heaven." Obviously, his life was not a standard, and yet Jesus grants that today you will be with me in paradise. And I find that as an encouragement. I also know, like the point you made, we will not have the heart motivation we have on the earth. We are sinners now, but in heaven we won't have that. It will not be the jealousy or the, you know, look at that person. Maybe they have a differential rank. I think just 
you know, we'll be so transformed in, in the image of Christ that, that uh, as I had a dear friend that died of cancer a few years ago, and, and he was always impressed with Uriah's story. And he said, my hope in heaven is just to be with Christ, but also to, to have the honor of being the one that sweeps Uriah's doorstep. So, you know, I, I think, I think um, just that being the presence of Christ will be that's so amazing. And we won't have that. We won't have the earthly motivations we have now. But I appreciate the teaching. Thank you. Amen. Anyone else? Yes, uh, no, Rick. I this just... is Emmanuel, real quick. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead, Emmanuel. Yeah, I just wanted to um, comment that laying our treasures uh, – I, I look at it from the perspective of discipleship. Who do you, the people that you invest your life in, uh, whether it be unbelievers to come to saving faith, believers to, to grow in your relationship with the Lord. Um, thank you again. Thanks, man. Yeah, the Paul, Paul talks a lot about that, about how his disciples will be his reward, right? And that, that's what he's working for is for their maturity, for their um, confidence in the faith, and that his work as a minister, not just as a Christian, but as a minister, is going to be measured on how his people hold fast to the word of Christ, right? Anyone else? All right, well... If that was a lot really fast, because I felt like it was fast, there's a lot of stuff there, please, I implore you to go back um, when these slides are posted, or you can email me and I can send them to you. The slide notes have lots of references uh, to run and study this further, uh, to wrestle with it. And maybe in the end, it's one of those subjects you just kind of throw up your hands and I'm not sure here. Um, so let's, uh, yeah, go ahead. It, it, this is Dan here. It took me a long time to find the unmute button. Sorry. <laughs> uh, my, my comments are, you know, somewhat uh, uh, existential. You know, when I became a believer, I became a believer in an evangelical church where there was a whole lot of emphasis on what works are you doing that you're going to present to the Lord. You don't want to be found wanting on the last day. And it wasn't so much that you might be justified. We didn't use that language, but we just wanted to, it was, it was somewhat within the language of gratitude, but it really did open a big door for, for boasting. And, uh, you know, I've got, I've got a mansion in heaven and you live in a trailer, you white trailer trash. Um, they wouldn't say it that way, but that was the thing. As I became reformed, you know, for me, the, the operating thing that clarifies this is just covenant theology. If you really believe in an Adamic covenant of works whereby there were terms set for the covenant and uh, not met by Adam, but they're met by Christ, um, it really clears the clutter away. And so for me, you know, the, the rewards that we have, um, there's one reward. It's glory. It's eschatological glory. It's faithfully reflecting the image of our creator as we're remade in his image. And yeah, I mean, you're right. There's, there's going to be, you know, the, the works that we do in the flesh. There is some reflection in terms of the gifts that we give God. But I, I appreciate you pointing out that perfectly all of the Christian virtues that we're called to display um, are seen perfectly in heaven. Um, there's going to be no bickering about, oh, man, you know, I came so close to the touchdown line and I didn't make it, but I was just as good. And, it's going to be rejoicing because uh, God is going to receive praise from his glorified creation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, I haven't studied it as much as I should or could. Um, maybe it's laziness because, hey, all those crowns we're going to lay at the creator's feet and uh, rejoice. But nonetheless, the call to be faithful without having any link to our justification is real, you know, how, how does the world see the testimony of the church? Uh, it's through our works. They don't get the gospel, but they get our kindness. Um, and we hold on for that day when God opens their eyes and 
they get the gospel. Yeah, I don't know. That's thanks for making us think about this. Uh, you know, I'm a little. I haven't read an awful lot of John Piper. You know me. I, that's not typically the. I'd, I'd find older, you know, streams within our tradition, but uh, yeah, there, I mean, there are some worrisome tendencies about future justification and that kind of talk. I, th I think what I presented today, Augustine, uh, Augustine and Calvin would agree with as well. <laughs> Maybe I should have quoted those more. <laughs> uh, go wrong with Calvin. <laughs> well, that's where that, that last paragraph in chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession gives us. It, it talks about rewards. And so there is something, even in our denomination, our creed, that speaks to that, that doesn't just whitewash it away. Uh, and yet it doesn't go into a lot of details. And maybe that's, that's the best we can do, is just leave it at that. All right, well, let's pray. We're um, approaching our worship time. Our Father, we thank you again for humbling us. Uh, help us not to ever be lazy or grow comfortable that we've got it all. Help us to continually wrestle with your word, to grow in it. Uh, help us to find at the heart of it um, our beloved Savior. May we be so thankful for uh, all he's done in our life. Thank you for justification by faith that we will stand perfect for nothing that we have done. Um, motivate us, Father, by whatever that proper motivation is. Motivate us to good works. And may us see genuine works that were not done for their praise or approval, but that they would naturally flow out and that people would be drawn to the gospel uh, because of our lives. Help us in our, each of our relationships. Help us to long for heaven and, and to practice those virtues and those um, proper relationships as best we can and by your strength. And now we look eagerly to go into worship. May we hear the gospel. May we see the early church in Acts and be, be both strengthened, encouraged, and humbled by all you're doing through time and into eternity. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Keith. Thank you. Thanks, Keith. Thank you. Thanks, Keith. Thank you all for participating. Thank you, Keith. And we will see you all at church. Have a good one, guys.